Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Todd Myers is the director of the Center for the Environment at Washington Policy Center. His new book is Time to Think Small. It's a call to climate action that examines ways we can leverage the growing power of smartphones and other technologies to become effective environmental stewards to protect threatened species, reduce risk from climate change, stop ocean plastic, and help solve many other problems. Todd Myers is author previously of Ecofads, How the Rise of Trendy Environmentalism is Harming the Environment. He's authored numerous studies on environmental issues. And he's worked on a range of environmental issues, including climate policy, forest health, old-growth forests, and salmon recovery. He's a former member of the executive team at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources and a member of the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council. Todd Myers, uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so... Uh, not apropos of your book, but I just I just had to ask you. Uh, in your bio, you say you're a beekeeper. Yes. And and uh, you mentioned two hundred thousand bees. You live with two hundred thousand bees. I mean, your your family <laughs> as well, right? That's that's some pretty serious beekeeping. I, I don't know. Is that a large operation? No, it's it's uh, it's actually about four hives. <laughs> so oh, okay. At their peak in the in the summer. Um, there are about 50,000 bees uh, in a hive, oh. um, and so 200,000 sounds like a lot, but it's, it's very small. I have a, um, uh, a friend who used to have a beekeeping, a commercial beekeeping operation, and he had more than 1,000 hives, so, so four is just a hobby. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned in my book, one of the things that I learned from bees is that the power of doing lots of small things adds up because each bee you know, only collects a tiny amount of nectar in its entire lifetime, and yet they can produce a huge amount of honey and run the hive, each by little, each little bee doing their job. And so it's a good metaphor for where I think we need to go with environmental action. Oh, oh, great. You can tell I'm not a beekeeper. I thought, I thought 200,000 was, you know, <laughs> overwhelming. It was 50,000 per hive, and you got four hives. But, uh, uh, in fact, there's a, there's a little drawing of a bee on, on the cover of your book. So I guess that, that, uh, that's – you told us why there. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your background. You've, you've worked in government. You've worked, I guess, private sector. You've worked in tech. Yeah. So I've worked in environmental policy for about 22 years. Um, I, when I went to work for the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, I went as a political appointee. Um, we elect um, the commissioner of public lands in Washington State, who manages Washington State's state forest and aquatic lands. Um, and at that time, I didn't know much about environmental policy. Um, and I spent a year walking around the forests of Washington State, listening to biologists and foresters talk about how we manage forests, sort of natural processes, and how these ecosystems work. And I just was absolutely fascinated. And I remember stopping one forester as we were talking about an issue. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't hear a lot of this stuff in public, this, the, the interesting things you're telling me. And he says, yeah. This is unfortunately the political discussion about forestry and forest is very different than what we see on the ground. And at that point, I was hooked, uh, not just because of the gap between what foresters and biologists deal with every day in managing forests and, and making sure that they're healthy and productive, but uh, also just how interesting these issues are. And so uh, 22 years later, I am still working in environmental policy and trying to um, create policy that puts more power in the hands of people on the ground who are actually facing the problems um, rather than um, hoping that politicians who have 
many other things to deal with will get it right because I find often that there is that gap between what is happening on the ground and, and the political fights that we have. You say in the book that in the past uh, the political system has worked. You say in the 1970s uh, government was quite effective, but in recent times uh, maybe not as effective. Yeah, so um, when people think about government action to help the environment, they think of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And the reason they think about it is because they worked, right? We have much cleaner air, much cleaner water than we did in the early 1970s when those laws were passed. The challenges that we face today, though, are much different. They are much more distributed. The types of problems that we faced in the 1970s with big outfalls into water, pollution and things like that, and big smokestacks were really appropriate for government solutions because government can make a big difference um, with targeted efforts. Now we have lots of little inputs um, that aggregate into um, environmental harm. Um, ocean plastic is one that people think of. Climate change, because everybody does a little bit, uh, puts a little bit of CO2 in the atmosphere, and the aggregate is a big impact. And so it's a distributed problem when we need a distributed solution. Um, and it's not just me saying that. It's actually Bill Ruckelshaus, who was the first uh, director of the Environmental Protection Agency, a man who helped sort of put in place the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And he wrote in a piece about 10 years ago that the types of solutions we saw in the 1970s aren't likely to be appropriate today. And that's what I wanted to focus on in my book is, is that the good news is, is we now have tools that are appropriate to solving those sorts of problems with technology, with a distributed approach that can tackle the types of environmental problems we have today that are different than they were in the 1970s. You say that um, putting all our eggs in the in the political basket is risky because I guess no matter where you are on this issue, it comes down to did we win the last election, right? Um, yeah. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, so I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. In fact, you you say you've quoted in an interview I was reading. You say I have friends with a wide range of views on the issue, and everyone thinks they're losing. I guess if you lost the last election, you think well we've lost on the environment as well. Yeah, that's right. It's, it is really interesting because when I talk with conservatives, they think that the uh, environmentalists on the left are all winning. And I can tell you that when I talk with my friends in the environmental left, uh, they think that, you know, the oil companies that are folks are all winning. Um, and I think it's because they focus so much on political outcomes and whether they get what they want at the political level. Um, if you are um, uh, an environmentalist and you're on the left, um, you're probably not very happy with the most recent congressional election that put Republicans in control um, of Congress. Um, if you are a conservative, you are very unhappy that Joe Biden uh, won um, and undid many of the, the things that Donald Trump did uh, on changing um, environmental rules. So everybody thinks that they're losing because um, – you know, once you lose an election, and of course, no, as we have seen, no majority is permanent, um, then you think that everything that you want to happen is in peril. Um, and that's just not good. That's just not good environmental policy. Sustainability, you know, is all about long-term sustainable change. And politics is the opposite of sustainable. Uh, it fluctuates back and forth. And so, 
the more power we can take out of that sort of cycle um, and, uh, and move away from sort of the political back and forth, the more likely we are to create environmental solutions that are, you know, truly for the long term. Um, one of the things that I tell people is, is that I think the environment is too important to leave in the hands of politicians, that we ought to take action ourselves, because that's the only way we can make sure that it isn't contingent on the whims of the voters in the next election. The first uh, chapter is, is uh, titled, Why Small Technology is the Future of Environmental Stewardship. That's kind of your uh, central thesis. Uh, but I want to contrast, and we'll get into that, of course, some specific examples. Um and and I and I take your point, but uh, government's got to be involved somewhere, right? The, this is a these are huge problems, and got got to have policy solutions in there somewhere, right? Yeah, and that's and I have you know as I said, I have worked in state agencies. I sit on a state board right now in Washington State for salmon recovery. I absolutely agree um, that government has a role to play, um, but I think that we ought to recognize that. Um, there is an increasing role for individuals empowered um, with new technology and new tools in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, so that, I think, is the biggest mindset that we have to change, is that we need to recognize the power of these new opportunities, um, which which are just emerging. And, and, and it's it's hard to know the direction that it will go. But if we ignore them, then I think we're missing huge opportunities. There's a thing called proportionality bias, which makes us believe that big problems require big solutions. Um, and so if you believe, you know, climate change is a big problem, then you naturally think that it needs a big government solution. But in fact, what we see is, is that lots of small actions aggregate into big solutions. So our mindset shouldn't simply be that the only way that these problems can be solved is through big government actions, because we see that small actions add up to a lot. I want to get into uh, some. You have many examples in the book. Uh, maybe uh, choose one example to start. What's what's a, what's a good example? <clears throat> well, just apropos of the point I was just making about how powerful these can be, rather than talk about climate change, let's talk about ocean plastic, because... Um, while climate change is a very uh, politicized and very divisive issue, ocean plastic is not. Nobody wants trash and plastic to go into the ocean to har- harm marine animals and things like that. The United States plays a very small role in putting plastic into the ocean. In fact, there was a study in science that found that Sri Lanka puts about five times as much plastic into the ocean as the entire United States combined. So that's really where the problem is, is in developing countries. So a group called Plastic Bank went to several developing countries and started a program where they would pay people to collect plastic off of the beaches to prevent it from going into the ocean. And so people would pick it up. They would geolocate where they picked it up because they had their phone. They would turn it into a a plastic bank collection point, um, and then they would get paid on their phone because they often don't have bank accounts. And then plastic bank took that plastic and sold it to S.C. Johnson, who turns it into Windex bottles. So if you go to the store and you buy a Windex bottle, it will say, made with ocean-bound plastic. And all of this... Um, is really using little more than cell phones. People can tell you where the plastic was from on cell phones uh, because they collected it. They get paid on cell phones. 
And yet that, just that simple process, they have collected more than 3.1 billion plastic bottles that might have washed into the ocean and 140 million pounds of plastic. That's truly incredible, and it's larger than any other effort that is out there. There is a program that is trying to collect plastic in the uh, in the ocean, which is a different type of problem. It's more difficult. But they call themselves the world's largest ocean cleanup, and they have collected about 4 million pounds of plastic compared to the 140 million that Plastic Bank has. So I just think it's a really remarkable example of an area where governments are struggling. Developing countries don't have the ability to collect the trash like we do in the United States. And a private, low-tech, relatively low-tech solution is having a huge uh, beneficial impact. Mm. Uh, you talk about uh, one thing you really emphasize is smart thermostats, something relatively simple, I would imagine, yeah. not, not too expensive. You say it can have a big impact. Yeah, so smart thermostats, <clears throat> you know, they're one of the things that you see repeatedly is, is that these technologies have to work with people to make their lives easier. And a side benefit um, is that it helps the environment. And I think smart thermostats are a great example of that. One of the things that smart thermostats do is that they use artificial intelligence um, to make sure that your house is um, heated or cooled to the temperature that makes you comfortable um, while figuring out <clears throat> how to do that in a way that uses uh, less energy and costs you and saves you money. But in the process of doing that, they also can provide great environmental benefits. So electricity use goes up in the morning, down in the middle of the day, and then reaches its peak uh, in the evening. And because to meet that demand, we have to turn on natural gas or coal plants, what you often see is, is that that electricity in the evening is also not only the most expensive, but it's the most carbon intensive as well. So what smart thermostats can do is heat or cool your house prior to those peak hours, can shift your demand outside of that window, and make it so that you're comfortable for that period of time without you having to purchase electricity when it is most expensive and carbon intensive. And the, the combined effort in this can be really powerful, not just in terms of shifting demand, but reducing overall demand. There is a company called Ohm Connect, which helps people use smart thermostats um, to, save, to save money and energy. And they estimate that using smart thermostats nationwide could save about 30 grand Cooley dams worth of electricity. So, again, it seems like a very simple, straightforward, small thing, but the aggregated impact can be enormous. You also give an example of uh, an example of California uh, facing an energy shortage, and the utility sent out text messages. I guess something as simple as text message can be effective. Yeah, well, I think this is I think this is about as good example of how powerful um, the ability to to share information can be. So this summer, a lot of times when when we talk about climate change or when we talk about renewable energy, we focus on the supply side. Okay, we're going to build more solar, we're going to build more wind, we're going to build hydrogen, all these different ideas, cool new ideas that people have. <clears throat> but what is neglected is the role that individual consumers can play in changing how we use electricity. And, and these are extremely low-cost approaches. 
So this summer, when California was facing an energy um, crisis, they didn't have, you know, temperatures were high and they were facing blackouts. Um, California has a lot of batteries that are used to store energy, shift it from, you know, the middle of the day when the sun is shining to the evening when that peak hits. But as the peak was coming, they were short. And so what they decided to do was to send a text out to all of the, not all of them, but many residential consumers, um, and say, look, we are facing blackouts. Conserve if you can. And within 15 minutes, demand declined by 2,000 megawatts, the equivalent of all of the battery power that was being used in California at that time, at virtually no cost. And so I think that it is, again, it's, it was just a text, very simple, very low tech, and yet it had enormous impact at a moment when California was facing blackouts. I guess to, to you know, take this uh, out, uh, kind of to the principle behind it. You you say that um, you know, and it, it readily, I think people would agree. There are many, many, many people who who aren't in the cause, right? They they agree. Yeah, something needs to be done about the environment. Something needs to be about done about climate change. But it's not my number one priority. My number one priority is surviving. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you're saying that these technologies can. Uh, can be adopted by these people if they see the benefit for them. Absolutely. If you, no matter how serious or unserious you, you take uh, the risk from climate change, um, everybody wants to save money. And so if I can give you technology tools that help you reduce the amount of energy you use so that it reduces your electricity bill, you're going to use that. <laughs> and if there is an ancillary benefit of reducing CO2 emissions or reliance on other countries uh, for energy, um, then that's great. Um, and that, I think, is one of the, the best things about this is, is that, as I said, climate change, um, according to Gallup, is one of the most divisive issues in the country. And so finding political common ground, finding political solutions in that environment is extremely difficult. But technology can do that because technology can cater to people, giving them a variety of reasons to use the technology. And the other thing is, that technology is not contingent on the next election. As we said, you know, you lose an election um, and your policies can go away. But if people are using technologies that save them money, they're not going to get rid of that just because their guy or the other guy won election. It is a truly sustainable approach and it's sustainable because it transcends the divisive politics that um, are too often uh, guiding um, environmental policy. We'll get into more examples as we go along, but I, I just wanted to, you know, do an optimism check here. Um, this, you're quite optimistic about this, I think, right? Um, I, I don't know. There's, uh, you know, there's probably skepticism out there. Um, how? How much can this, uh, how big a piece of the pie can, can the, these technologies uh, take a bite out of? How, uh, how significant is this? Yeah, I think there's two answers to that. The first answer is, um, I think of a lot of the, the pessimism comes from the notion that only politics can salute, can solve these problems. And uh, what we see, of course, is gridlock in politics. The most recent uh, international climate conference just concluded in Egypt 
And going into that and coming out of it, a lot of environmental groups said, why are we doing this, right? Year after year, we have these meetings, and yet CO2 emissions continue to go up. We don't see results, and it's causing people to be very frustrated. And so I think that that is generating a lot of the pessimism around issues like climate change. With regard to why I'm optimistic is because I see the power. Um, you know, I've worked in environmental policy for 20 years. I've been very frustrated that um, government, while it does good things, um, we're missing a lot of our targets. Um, CO2 emissions here in Washington State, we're not recovering salmon at the rate that we need to. Um, and so I've seen that frustration and looked around for alternatives. When I started looking, I realized that there were a lot of people who were doing things that were already having a positive impact. Um, and then there was a rule, um, a guy named Matt Ridley um, from the UK, who is a science writer and writes about technology. He created a thing, he, he came up with a rule called Amara's Law. And what Amara's Law is, is the sort of the nature of how technology has an impact. And what he says is that early on, people get very excited about it, right? The opportunities, oh my God, this is going to change the world. And then there's a period where it's kind of quiet, where it doesn't take off as people hope. And so they sort of become disillusioned. And he says it's right about then that technologies often take off and actually have even a bigger impact than people believe. I, can, I am old enough to remember in the early 90s when people actually debated whether personal computers would have that much impact on our lives. <laughs> and it was right about then, especially at the end of the 90s, that they really took off. And I see that trend with a lot of these environmental and conservation technologies. And, and that's why I'm very hopeful. Well, let's take a break. We'll come back with more with Todd Myers. He's director of Center for Environment at the Washington Policy Center. His new book is Time to Think Small. The subtitle is How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Help uh, Can Solve the Planet's uh, Biggest Problems. We'll have more following this break. Holiday programming on UPR is made possible by Intermountain Primary Children's Hospital, striving to keep children first for more than a century with a commitment to continue to help build the nation's model health system for children helping kids to live their healthiest lives for the next hundred years. Information at primarypromise.org. The Utah Women in Leadership Project and the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity have created an initiative to identify 100 Utah companies that champion women. These companies have created an environment where women can thrive. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we highlight one of those companies, Digital Responsibility. Listen now at upr.org. Dance and dine the year away and welcome in 2023 during the UPR New Year's Eve event at the Mount Naomi Vineyards. Dinner by off-premise catering, including cheese fondue, champagne, and seasonal spirits, and a full buffet of food and delicious desserts. Make your music request to our DJ and dance under the disco ball. Reserve your individual or group table tickets online at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Todd Myers on the program today. He's director of the Center for the, the Environment at Washington Policy Center. The latest book is Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's uh, Biggest uh, Problems. So Todd Myers, I'd like to have you give me uh, another couple of uh, examples. Uh, maybe starting with this one uh, jumped uh, out at me. Um, 
how bird watchers can can help yeah. with uh, with endangered species. Yeah, so um, uh, I, uh, you know, actually it was funny because I wasn't much of a bird watcher before um, I got a hold of eBird, and so eBird is an app that's created by uh, Cornell University, the Cornell Ornithology Labs. And initially, they wanted to create an online portal for bird watchers to put in the data that they had because there are lots and lots of bird watchers who had lots and lots of data in personal notebooks and things like that. Um, and so they put up a web page and they found that people would do it um, because they were interested in contributing data to that uh, scientists could use to understand bird migratory patterns and a variety of other things. But they said once they created the app eBird and put it, you know, on uh, smartphones, that the amount of data just absolutely exploded because it wasn't just that people were putting the data in to help science. It was that the data was helping themselves, that they were keeping their life list, that they could remember and, you know, what birds they saw uh, when and where. And so, of course, putting it in on your smartphone means that it knows the time and the location of where you're putting it in and also what birds you are likely to see. And so it can give you some hints and things like that. And actually, there's a, a companion app um, called Merlin Bird ID, where it now has a tool where you can simply record and it will listen to bird songs and give you <laughs> a recommendation of what bird you think you're listening to. It's really a cool app. So... What they decided to do with all this data, now they have these millions and millions of bits of data that people have collected for them, and they wanted to protect habitat um, in the Central Valley of California for migratory seabirds. And they knew almost down to, you know, the field, individual parcels of land where the migratory birds were passing through. So they went to rice farmers in the area uh, in conjunction with the Nature Conservancy and said, how much would we have to pay you to flood these fields in January and February when the birds are passing through to create habitat for their route? And the farmers gave them a price, um, and they were able to sort of essentially lease that land. They called it Airbnb for birds because you're just <laughs> you're leasing the habitat for a short period of time. And it worked. And the reason it worked is because they had all of this data that used to be out there in people's individual notebooks, but is now on smartphones and now in Cornell's database. And it is the type of example of how citizen science um, is creating new opportunities, not only to understand species, but to understand how we can provide the habitat that they need. And since Virtually every um, threatened species in the United States relies to some extent on private land rather than just government-owned land. It engages private landowners in a very positive way. Rather than punishing them for having habitat by saying, well, you can't touch this because we have to protect it, it says you have valuable land for species and we want to pay you for it. And so it is really a win-win, both for landowners and for species. We talked earlier in the hour about, you gave a suggestion, one thing that uh, you know the average person can do is reduce their electricity use between 4 and 7 p.m. You get a smart thermometer, the very simple thing. Another thing you say we can, we can all do that could have a pretty big impact is reduce water waste. Yeah, so people don't realize how much... Uh, water they waste uh, because they just don't have the information. About 10% 
of water used in a household is wasted, either by running toilets or little leaks, things like that, things that they might not see. And even if their utility recognizes it, there are many utilities across the country that still will send you a letter. So they will notice that there is a high rate of use at your home, um, and they will send you a letter saying, hey, can you, you know, look at this and figure out what the problem is? Well, then it could be days, of course, since that has been occurring, and a, and a running toilet or a leaking toilet can have a really big impact, again, not just on water, but on your pocketbook. So um, in uh, Santa Cruz, um, a uh, innovator uh, worked with somebody who used to work at the uh, uh, with a water commissioner there, and they created a little um, app or a little um, technology, rather, called Buoy that attached to your pipe running into your house using artificial intelligence to look at the flow and determine, you know, where you were using water. A shower is different than your washing machine and things like that. And tell you what was going on and then also could tell you if you were wasting water, if there was a constant flow of water that indicated that you were wasting water, and it would tell you on your phone, hey, you need to look at something, something's going on. But even more impactful, I think, is the fact that, you know, something like 3 to 5% of people every year have a catastrophic water leak um, where, you know, a pipe breaks or something, and it does more than $10,000 worth of damage in a house. And what would happen is, is that the... Uh, the, the buoy would immediately send a signal to your phone to say, we think there is a big leak in your house, and it would allow you to instantly turn off the water and stop the damage. So not only is it helping you conserve water, it's preventing those types of catastrophic leaks that cause uh, lots of lots of damage. And at a time when we're, especially in California but elsewhere, facing concerns about water shortages and drought, reducing just waste by 10%, right, not losing any usable water but just reducing waste, um, makes a really big impact um, both on the environment and your pocketbook. Uh, staying with water, there's a company called eWater. does work in Africa. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. This is one of my favorite stories because it shows that technology is not just something in the West, and some of the most exciting environmental innovations are actually occurring in the developing country. We in developing countries, we can fight about whether government or the private sector is the most appropriate sort of um, way to solve environmental problems. But in developing countries, they often don't have that luxury, right? There is The government simply cannot address the types of concerns that we have. It's only private action that can do it, and e-water is a perfect example. So uh, a group of former U.N. employees who worked on water projects, installing pumps and things like that, like that got very frustrated because what they would see is, is that pumps would be installed either by governments or NGOs, and that within about a year and a half, nearly half of those pumps would be broken. So now, once a pump is broken, unless you have somebody with local expertise, you are now waiting for the NGO or the government or somebody else to come back and fix it. And so these pumps could be broken for months at a time. So what eWater did is that they installed cloud-connected water pumps. 
And what that does is it allows them to do two things. One, to determine at any moment whether those pumps are working or not. And in fact, they have a dashboard online that shows about 96% of their pumps are working. But the other thing it allowed them to do was to charge a small fee, about a penny a day, for water. So somebody comes up with like a little key fob, like you would use to start your car, um, touches the pump, the water starts flowing. Because you're paying for water, you are careful, right? You don't waste water. You don't take more than you need because you have to pay for it. But more importantly, it creates a revenue stream to keep that pump running. So when the pump breaks, somebody is losing money, and they get an instant notification that the pump is broken, and somebody in the area who is responsible for maintenance goes, fixes that pump, and gets it back working and generating revenue again. And that is a big reason that you see 96% of their pumps running. This is not only important for um, providing clean water, access to clean water, um, it also is good for the environment because if you don't have access to well water, uh, what you do, and it's typically the women who do this, is to walk, you know, a mile or a kilometer away to um, get water from a local river or stream. But you don't know if that water is clean, so then what they do is they buy charcoal. So they're paying for charcoal, charcoal that has been made from trees that were cut down. And so one of the leading causes of deforestation in parts of Africa is cutting down wood to cook food and boil water. And so if you can reduce the need for that, you're not only saving people money, you're reducing the impact on deforestation. And lastly, the other way that you can get clean water is to buy um, a plastic bag. Well, if you don't have access to clean water, you certainly don't have access to reliable garbage service. And so you buy a plastic bag of clean water, but then you discard the plastic. And so it also contributes to plastic pollution. So just a simple thing like a cloud-connected uh, water pump is not only empowering women, making it so that they don't have to hike long distances, but it's also reducing the impact of deforestation and reducing plastic waste. It is a really incredible example of the power of just very simple technologies. Uh, before we go to another break, uh, I want to have you talk about another one that you uh, that you uh, suggest that we uh, consider, uh, which is joining a microgrid. What what's a microgrid? <laughs> well, microgrids are are pretty uh, early on in their innovation. Um, but again, where you see them often is in developing countries, but there is one, um, in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn microgrid. <clears throat> and it is, uh, not too far away from where Thomas Edison, uh, created the first power plant. And it's not unlike that, that power plant because that first power plant had a very limited range in how far that they could shift the electricity. Um, and what a microgrid is, typically it's solar panels, but it is uh, a community that is connected together um, where they are generating electricity um, and then selling it to each other. So if it's a particularly hot day and somebody wants to use their air conditioner um, and you're generating electricity, you can sell them a little bit of yours. 
And it gives you an incentive to conserve because you'd rather sell your electricity, your excess electricity to somebody else and make some money rather than use it for yourself. But other people may say, you know, I, I'm hot. I want the electricity. I want to use it to turn on my air conditioner. And so these microgrids basically allow people to become their own little utility. Now, this is very early on in the United States. In some countries overseas, um, especially in developing countries, they will create local microgrids that are um, a main source of electricity. Here in the United States, microgrids are always backed up by you know the main grid um, with, that we uh, rely on. But I think it is... Um, it is more about sort of the future and the, the, the breadth of opportunity that we have now with these technologies to where people can literally now be their own utility, buying and selling electricity, making sure that their lights stay on, using, you know, air conditioning and things like that when they want to, and making a little money. That's how far uh, we have come, and I think that the opportunities in that area are only going to grow. If you just joined us, we're talking with Todd Myers. He is director of the Center for the Environment at Washington Policy Center. His latest book is Time to Think Small. The subtitle is How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. That's out available now. And we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll visit some of the countries where the music is as intoxicating as the wine. France, Italy, South Africa, Chile, Australia, and more. You come from a land down on love. Women glow and men plunder. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Music from the Winelands, the next Putumaya World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. My guest for there was Todd Myers, author most recently of Time to Think Small. Uh, Todd Myers, I'd uh, like to have you talk a little bit about uh, an op-ed I found. Uh, this is fairly recent, uh, September of last year, I think. Um, yeah, um, it was September of uh, this year. Yeah, we're still in 2022. I'm, I'm already <laughs> thinking about 2023. Um, so just a couple of months ago, uh, the spokesman, uh, the Spokane Spokesman Review newspaper, uh, you say, here's a simple question. How should we measure the success of climate policy? And the answer should be, you say, by maximizing CO2 reduction for every dollar spent. That that should be the, you know, the, the prime um, measure. And you go on to, to outline in, in this op-ed piece that often that is not how we uh, go about measuring our effectiveness. Yeah, so... 
I was, you know, we uh, this summer, uh, the Congress uh, passed and the uh, president signed um, a spending bill on climate policy that promised to reduce CO2 emissions nationwide. Um, I uh, have seen a lot of these sorts of spending projects, um, and I am a little bit dubious that it will achieve the goals that it that it promises. And the main reason is that with many of these things, um, there's a long list of technologies that are favored um, and other uh, special interest groups whose preferences are written into the bill rather than uh, legislation that is written to say, um, we think that this is a national priority to do this. We are willing to spend um, public money achieving these goals, reducing CO2 emissions, but we want to make sure that every dollar we spent yields the greatest amount of CO2 reduction. The more concerned you are about climate change, the more you ought to demand that every step we take yields the maximum environmental benefit because we don't have time to make a lot of um, what I think are silly mistakes by you know, funding speculative technologies. And there's lots of examples of that. Um, and one that I like to talk about all the time is, is that um, the Pacific Coast, California, Oregon, and Washington, promised that by 2010 there would be a hydrogen highway stretching from Los Angeles all the way to Vancouver, Canada for the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Well, of course, we don't have a hydrogen highway where people can fill up their cars. And so we spend a lot of time on things that sound cool but don't actually work out. Um, so when you ask folks, okay, why do you think this will work, typically what they say is, well, it spends a lot of money. But spending a lot of money is not the metric. Effectiveness, right? Total CO2 reduction should be the metric. And while we've talked a lot about, about examples from my book, one of the underlying things that most or all of these examples take advantage of is that they connect individuals to environmental problems without being mediated through politics. If I want to reduce my energy use, either because I care about CO2 or I just want to save money, and I do something and it doesn't work and I end up paying the same amount or more, I'm going to find a way to change. Uh, because I have that personal incentive, because I'm personally linked to the outcomes. Politicians, though, don't like to admit that they're wrong. And so when they spend money on something that doesn't work or support a regulation that doesn't work, very rarely they say, you know what, we really screwed that up. <laughs> and then they change. They have a disincentive to change because it means that they look dumb, and politicians don't like to look dumb. None of us like to look dumb. But if I have an incentive to change, I will change. If I have a disincentive to change, then I won't. And that is why I think, you know, a lot of the public policy that we pass that seems to hold so much promise doesn't live up to those promises because the emphasis is on appearance, not on results. Well, the chapters in your book, uh, by the way, it's uh, Time to Think Small. Todd Myers, my guest, is the author. Uh, one of the chapters in your book, you talk about carbon offsets, um, and, and you say that uh, the left and the right are skeptical for different reasons of carbon offsets. From the left, 
Environmental activists, I'm quoting you, argue that phony carbon offset programs allow companies to continue to emit emissions while actually, um, you know, not uh, actually reducing total worldwide gas uh, emissions. And from the right, I hadn't heard this. This is this is pretty good. From the right, offsets are characterized as indulgences. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> much like you know, the religious salvation was sold by the Catholic Church exactly. in the 16th century. The implication on both sides is that it's possible to fake this, and so that the great need is uh, solid accounting, solid proof, right? So how do we solve that problem? Yeah, so I used to be one of those people who uh, was very skeptical of carbon offsets. I thought that they were uh, a little bit phony. I thought that they were just a way to, you know, make yourself look good without having to do very much. Um, and so I started talking to people about this, and what I found was is that there are actually some accounting systems where you can certify more or less, you know, um, how the, the effectiveness of various projects. And there is always a margin of error. There is always more that we're learning. There is always the opportunity for fraud. But there are lots of systems that now can say, okay, yes, that actually is reducing um, CO2 emissions. And so every year I um, invest in about 20 metric tons of CO2 to get myself to either carbon neutral or near carbon neutral um, by investing in projects that reduce methane emissions from landfills. That is incredibly unsexy, right? I mean, if you tell people, you know what you need to do is you need to invest in reducing methane from landfills. It's not like planting trees or other things like that. But I find that to be the most effective. But again, it is there are ways to measure it and ways to determine the effectiveness. And what's interesting, what's so strange about this is that government invests, spends money in a lot of these sorts of projects here in Washington State. Uh, the state spends money um, helping to reduce methane emissions from landfills. But if a private sector organization did it and said, here we have reduced this amount of CO2 from the same exact project, it doesn't count for Washington's um, CO2 goals. And again, I think that has more to do with politics than actual effectiveness. The key in all of these things is providing data and information, which technology does more now than ever before, and connecting people and their personal incentives directly to outcome. And so the reason I have chosen uh, the particular types of projects um, is because I believe they have the, the most robust accounting, the best likelihood of actually reducing total CO2 emissions. That's information that would have been very difficult to come by 10 or 15 years ago, but now I can look at it um, and determine with some you know, significant degree of confidence that it's actually real. That's the opportunity that technology and the information it provides um, is giving us. Uh, and it's not only carbon offsets. It's um, well, I'll just read this paragraph. I find it hilarious. You, you, uh, you set the scene from the TV series Portlandia. And if people haven't checked out Portlandia, they should. Um, so I'm just reading from from uh, Todd Meyer's book, which is based on the, this particular episode of Portlandia. Uh, before ordering chicken at a restaurant, two customers have questions. Is that USDA organic, organic, Oregon organic, or Portland organic? The waitress brings them the chicken's papers to 
reassure the customers that the chicken they will be enjoying was raised locally, was fed organic hazelnuts, and had four acres on which to happily roam, that his name was Colin. That's, uh, that's, that is so Portlandia, very funny. But um, again, proof, right? And, and you say uh, blockchain technology can, can, can help us get that proof. That's right. So if you want to know that your chicken was treated well or raised in a particular way, cage-free or whatever, um, you know, you can go to the store um, and buy cage-free eggs or cage-free chickens. Um, And there are some, you know, certifications that that is the case. Um, But if you are really a stickler, as the people in Portlandia were, you want to see some evidence. And now we can provide that evidence. And so blockchain, you know, it's a name or it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. But really, it is just a transparent ledger where you can see every step of the way um, how a chicken or a fish or something else got from the farm or the ocean to your plate. Um, and in fact, it, uh, Starkist Tuna, if you go, um, they have a little thing that you can scan on the side uh, with a number and it will show you how your tuna um, got to that can. And there is a, I worked, I talked with a, uh, somebody in, in Fiji who was working on a program called Traceable about how you could ensure that the fish that was caught in the Pacific um, was sustainably caught, was caught according to the laws, and doesn't contribute to overfishing. And they they say that blockchain allows you to track the fish from bait to plate. Um, and of course, the you know the bad actors, the people who aren't um, you know go, you know following the rules, um, aren't going to participate in these types of programs. But um, in the same way that people look for a dolphin-safe tuna label, you can look for these sorts of things that Starkist and others have and just simply not buy those that don't have that certification. Now this is possible because the technology is so available, so ubiquitous, that even very small actors can now do this. You don't have to be a big company. You can be a small boat um, and participate in these sorts of uh, programs that assure consumers that they're getting what they want. Blockchain is an example of there. there's sometimes trade-offs, right? Is, isn't blockchain pretty energy intensive? It can be very energy intensive, and certainly it was you know, created for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, um, and they have a system that is extremely energy intensive, as people have pointed out. And in some cases, frankly, blockchain is unnecessary. It's too... Uh, it's, you know, it's too much of a technology solution for the limited types of problems. But on more, on smaller scale things where you simply want to look for transparency, it can be a low energy approach that is still transparent. It is not the only, you know, example, and it's not the only thing that is necessary to make these sorts of transparent um, supply chains um, uh, available. But um, it does. It provides that reassurance again that you're getting what you paid for, and it will um, evolve over time. People will find lower energy ways to do the same type of thing, but the fact that it is available at all is remarkable because, like I say, just ten years ago, it wasn't even an option. We just have about a minute left. I wonder what your biggest takeaway you hope people take away from uh, time to think small. I think two things. The first is hope. Um, there's a lot of uh, discouraged people about the environment who feel like 
um, we're not making the progress that we need, um, and that the only hope is to try to cajole politicians to do what they want. Um, and that becomes very frustrating. I've worked in public policy for more than two decades, and there are many, many frustrating moments I have, but I want people to know that there is hope, that there is a lot of progress being made on some issues that seemed very intractable just not too long ago. And the second is empowerment. Um, you know, we have seen a lot of people taking really extreme steps, destroying art and doing things because they feel that they don't have any other power, that they are expressing themselves in the only way that they know how by protesting or being destructive, to try to get the attention of politicians. There are now opportunities where you don't have to do that, where you can directly solve problems, either just in your own house or create technologies that have the impact on the scale of plastic bank or e-water or other things like that, that make a truly global impact. And it is no longer you know, out of your reach. The barriers have been reduced by technology. Um, and so everyone has the power to do something. And like I said, like we started this conversation with the bees, each individual bee does a very small thing, but the aggregated impact of all of those small things adds up a lot. And I want people to remember that and not think that the little things they do don't mean uh, much. Todd Myers is director of the Center for the Environment at Washington Policy Center, author most recently. The book uh, is out now. Uh, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd Myers, uh, thank you. Appreciate you taking the, the time. Yeah, it was a very fun conversation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is now streaming a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Puedes escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingüe en UPR. Puedes escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. I'm Susie Lafaelli from St. George, Utah. I listen to Utah Public Radio on my UPR app. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.